And uh, we're right in the middle or kind of the tail end of this series called 90. I think that video is really cool if you've been here with us through the whole like 10 weeks so far as you kind of track along and, and see some of the things in that video like the well that we've covered in a lot of um, this series so far. But as we get started, there's two words that I think make all of us a little uncomfortable. Two words I think when you hear them, you think, I don't know like totally if I agree with those or they make you a little suspicious. And those two words are unlimited and unconditional, right? Like unlimited, unlimited data. That's what I think of. I remember me and my wife, we had a straight talk wireless for a while back in the day. We're, you know, really pinching pennies and, and we uh, had the unlimited, you know, card and it was unlimited data, right? But it wasn't really unlimited data, was it? And then I, I remember eventually we got a check in the mail from straight talk for like like $6.75 because someone sued them because it, it wasn't really unlimited data, right? Like there was the fine print that no one truly read. And then you have Verizon who has, what, two unlimited plans? Like if it's unlimited, why do you need two of them? That seems kind of weird, doesn't it? But they're unlimited, and it makes you kind of wonder, or unconditional money-back guarantee, right? Like I don't believe you. There's some way you're going to trick me out of getting my money back. But it just makes us a little fishy, right? Like when someone says unconditional or unlimited, it kind of makes you feel a little weird. Like your parents, you know, they'd say, I'll always love you, right? Like I love you with unconditional love. But you wonder, is there really a line that, you know, maybe if I do just a little bit too much, I can really test the bounds of that unlimited love or that unconditional love that my mom or my dad says they have for me. Or maybe it's like someone standing up and saying, I love you, and there's nothing you can do about it at the end of a service, right? Like, it kind of ma- makes you feel like you want to challenge that, doesn't it? If this is your first time, Jim says that almost every Sunday, so I had to get a little jab in there. But, but it makes you want to challenge it a little bit, doesn't it? When someone says unconditional or unlimited, like we went to Disney and we bought, like, the mug, right? And it was unlimited drinks, I wanted to put that to the test. I wanted them to actually tell me, sir, you've, you've had enough. Like, you can't have any more soda. But we want to push it. And maybe some of you, that's kind of what you've, why you've been a little skeptical about church. Right? Like you've heard this story, like this guy, he's, he's you know, he's all loving. Right? He has unconditional love for you. That God loves you no matter what. And you wonder, is that really true? Like can God really love me unconditionally? Like, do you know the things that I've done? Like, does he know where I've been? Does he know my record, my track record? Is this church thing really different? Like, is journey really different? Is this really a place where I can belong, even if I don't believe? Like, I don't know if that's really true. You know, when Jim shared those, those 27 words in John 3.16, that God so loved the world, but does he really? Like, is there really an unconditional unlimited love out there? If he's all-knowing, then he must know what I've done. And there must be a limit to that. But I can tell you, if you've ever thought those words, if, if these make you uncomfortable, then I, I, I want to tell you that I'm glad that you're here this morning, that we have something special for you this morning. So we're going to jump back in to kind of our story in the life of Jesus and where we are. We're picking up uh, at, at the Passover. So the Passover festival is going on, all right? And this is like the festival, okay? This is 
the biggest thing in, the, in the, the life of a Jewish individual. This is what they look forward to all year. It's the biggest celebration that they have on their calendar. It's great. It's when they, they celebrate you know, the, their ancestors' deliverance out of Egypt. That's what Passover is. It's a celebration. And, and though it's an exciting time, it's kind of a bittersweet time for them because though God brought their ancestors out of Egypt, out of that environment, out of that slavery... The nation of Israel right now, in this time period, they're kind of, they're under Roman occupation, right? Like, they're not totally free themselves. And so, though they're celebrating this, there's still a little bit of a bittersweet, like, I wish that God would come back, that, that I wish that Messiah would come and, and rescue us, like he did all those years ago for Egypt, for the Jews to bring them out of Egypt. And so, Passover was a really big, really big time. They were excited. The place was bumping, right? The streets were packed full of people. Hotels are booked. It's kind of like when, when we had the fish concert down on the, the waterfront a couple years ago. Like sandals everywhere. It was just the biggest thing going on in the city at that time. Now everyone was excited that it's Passover, but there was a little bit of a buzz in the air at this time. There's a little bit of like a, I, I, did you hear Jesus is coming? You hear, I think Jesus might be coming to this one. Do you think Jesus is going to be here? Did you hear what he did to that Lazarus guy? Like he showed up days later and he's alive now. Can, did you hear about that? Jesus, I think, I think he's coming. I think he's coming. And John, in his account, he says this, but the chief priests, right? But the chief priests and the Pharisees, they gave orders. They knew that Jesus was coming. They'd given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it that they might arrest him, okay? They wanted to take Jesus down. We knew this. This was their plan, and they knew that Jesus was coming, so they put forth a plan of their own that they're going to do whatever they can to arrest Jesus. They want to bring him down, okay? So they send spies out, okay? They have people walking the streets, just looking for Jesus, wondering where he is, because it's like a needle in a haystack, okay? There's just people everywhere, but they wanted to find out where Jesus was, and they needed to track his location. But they were a little smart about it. Like, they weren't the dumbest people in the world. But they had a plan. They said, but not during the festival. Okay, you can't do it during the festival because the people, they might riot. Like, if you try to take Jesus in the middle of the crowd on Main Street, people are going to go nuts. They're going to revolt. They're going to go crazy. They're going to riot if you try to take Jesus down. So they're hoping that they can just find out where he is, maybe track him to a, you know, a remote location or a back road somewhere or maybe in a back alley. I don't know if that's where Jesus hung out, but they're trying to find him in a place where they could get him and capture him with as little like knowledge of everybody else as possible. They're waiting for his arrival. They're expecting it and they're looking everywhere for him. And there may be, you know, all these people, they're excited. They're excited about the Passover. Maybe this is the one. Maybe this is going to be our Passover. Maybe this is the time when Jesus is going to kick open the gates and he's going to come in on his faithful steed and he's going to take over and we're finally going to be delivered out of these Roman hands and we're going to take back what God promised us so many years ago. It says that they took branches. So they see Jesus coming. 
Okay? They see him from afar. They're like, oh, there he is. There is Jesus. There he is. Okay, he's coming. We see him. And so they start to line the streets, almost like they're creating an impromptu parade at this point. Right? Like, like quick, like, Jesus is coming. Make way. So they kind of back up, and they bring palm branches out. So they have these giant palm branches, and they're, they're like waving them in the air for Jesus. And they're like putting them on the ground so Jesus could walk over them in reverence to him. And they took palm branches out, and they went to meet him, okay? They went to meet him, and they were shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! Which means save us. Save us now. So they're begging for Jesus, like, save us! Save us! And you imagine if you're a Roman, and you're there, and you're like, save you from what? Like, what, are you, what is your deal? And they're just, save us! They're begging. This is a prayer that they've probably prayed thousands and thousands of times to God, but now they have a person that they're actually able to say this to. Hosanna, save us, save us. And then they take it up a notch. They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, who comes with the authority of God, who comes in God's name. Like they're taking it up a notch at this point. God, like the guy who is in God's name, the guy who's got all the authority that God has given him. Blessed is he, blessed is he. And then it becomes a little political, right? Blessed is the king of Israel. Israel didn't have a king. Okay? Like Caesar's the only king. And they're yelling, you know, blessed is the king of Israel. And so Rome's getting a little, like, ooh, this is getting a little, you know, a little too energized. Like we might need to step in here. And the, the religious leaders are like, ooh, what are they doing? Like they're, they're really getting excited out there. But here's what's so important about this is that thousands and thousands of them are cheering Jesus on. They're there and they're excited about his return, begging for them to save them. And they thought, and maybe they assumed that he was there to do something huge, right? That Jesus wasn't there just to go celebrate the Passover and have a good time. They assumed that Jesus was there to do something big for the nation of Israel. They thought that Jesus was coming for their nation, that he would do something for Israel and he would take back what was theirs and everything would be great like it used to be. Blessed is the king. But in fact, he didn't come to do something for a nation. He came back to do something for you, for me. He came to do something for the entire world. But they had no clue. They couldn't see that far ahead. And last week, Jim kind of talked about, you know, this, this whole upside down kingdom that God's had, that God has, and he's talked about it like weeks before that. But this upside down kingdom where things kind of don't quite make sense. But over the next several days, Jesus is going to completely blow the minds of his disciples. He's going to roll out a plan that for them doesn't really sound like a plan at all. It doesn't even make sense to them. And so we're about two days away from Passover at this point. About two days. Okay. And the Pharisees they're, and the Sadducees, they're kind of like caught up in this whole thing. They're like, we haven't seen Jesus yet. We heard he was over there. And so we went over there, but then he was gone. And then we heard he was at the temple teaching. We went there, but by the time we got there, he's gone. And it's like this cat and mouse game where they're chasing Jesus down. And then something happens. Like the skies open up and, and then all of a sudden, this guy, Judas, appears. They never thought this would happen, but one of Jesus' men kind of breaks rank, and he shows up and says, Jesus, uh, Judas, not Jesus, Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. One of Jesus' like core 
guys, one of his friends, went and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. And guess what? They were delighted. They were pumped. This is like what they had hoped for. It's like plan A, get, a, get someone to turn on Jesus. It probably won't happen, so we need a plan B. But plan A happened. They're excited about this. But here's what's so interesting. They were so happy because they thought that if Jesus got too much power, that they would lose everything. They were afraid. They weren't delighted. They were afraid that Jesus would come and just take down everything that they stood for, their status, their job. They worried that their influence would go away, their lifestyle, their money, their friends. Everything that they found important to them, Jesus stood to take all of that away. And they thought that he's going to take that away. And maybe that's you today. Maybe that's why you've been hesitant to come to church. Maybe that's why you've been hesitant to follow Jesus. Because you're worried about what he might take away. I remember being, you know, 15 years old and just every time I got dragged to church, you know, week after week and I'd have to go to youth group and all these things. And I remember being presented with this whole idea of becoming a Jesus follower. And I would think, oh, if I did that, if I became like one of those people, like I would lose everything. I would lose my friends. Like I couldn't have any fun anymore, obviously, if I became a Christian. Like I'd have to listen to terrible music. Like if I became a Christian, like my life would be over. Kiss having a girlfriend goodbye, right? Like, it would just be the worst. But here's the thing that we discovered, and and I'm sure the Pharisees would discover eventually, is that Jesus didn't come to take anything away. Jesus died not to take anything away from you. Jesus came to give something. He came to give something up. He didn't come to take away. He came to give something up. So G- Judas makes this deal, okay? He makes this deal with the guys, and, and they're excited. The wheels are in motion. They've got their inside man. Like, like they, they know where Jesus is going to be now. They've got it going on. And their plan, here's the thing. It worked, right? Like, this is what they hoped would happen. They wrote down their steps, and we're going to get someone to betray Jesus, and we're going to find out where he is, and then we're going to go to where he is. We're going to arrest him, and we're going to kill him. It's going to be awesome. And here's the thing. It worked. That's what happened. They planned it out, and they succeeded. But as you know, like, that whole saying, like, you can win the battle, but you don't win the war, like, Jesus had this planned out too. He had a plan. And little did they know, Jesus intended to give himself up all along. That their plan was exactly what his plan ultimately would be. But we're not quite there yet. We're not there yet. So Passover comes. Okay, Jesus, he sends his disciples. He's like, hey guys, you know, find like a really nice place where we can get together and, and eat the Passover meal as friends and as a core group. Like someplace kind of remote, you know, maybe, maybe in an upper room somewhere. And so they find this place and they get together and they're about to eat. And, and they say this, while they were eating, Jesus, he takes some bread, okay? He took bread and he gave thanks for it. He thanked God for providing this bread for them. And it says he broke it. Okay, this isn't Texas Roadhouse bread, all right, with the nice cinnamon butter. This is like unleavened bread, okay? So it's like a a giant saltine, basically. And so he was able to break it, okay? So he breaks this crusty bread, and he passes it on to his disciples. He hands it out, okay? And he says, take and eat. Take, take this and eat this, all right? And they're like, oh, thanks, Jesus. This is great. And then he goes, this is my body, okay? Imagine being there. A guy hands you something, 
and you take it, and he tells you to eat it, and he's like, oh, by the way, this is my body. Like, that's a little weird, okay? Like, Jesus, like, what are you doing? Like, you're going all Hannibal Lecter on us. Like, this is a little odd, okay? You want us to eat this, and it's your, it's your body? Like, where are you going with this? Like, what part of your body? Like, I, I just, I feel like I got to know these things, Jesus. Like, but it doesn't, the oddness doesn't stop there. He, he carries on with it, okay? And he says this. So he says, eat this. This is my body. And he says, this is my body given for you. I'm giving it up for you. And he says, do this in remembrance. Okay, do this in remembrance of. And they're like, oh yeah, Jesus, we know this part, right? Like this is Passover. We're doing this in remembrance of Moses and what he did. And he brought our ancestors out of Egypt and he had the staff and he parted the sea and it was just awesome. Like we get, that's what we're doing. You know, Moses came and, and we're celebrating all this stuff. And he says, no, 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 no. Do this in remembrance of me. Not forget Moses. Do this in remembrance of me. You know, I'm sure that they thought, like, what, where is he going with this? This guy is a little nutty. He's, he's kind of losing his mind. Now, if you've been with us, you've, you've probably heard this whole thing about this new covenant and an old covenant and how Jesus and Moses are like butting heads. And, and I feel like I've said that like every time I've stood up here. And, and I'm sure that you've gotten a little like bored with that. But Jesus continually challenged Moses on almost everything. Every time he got a chance, he would challenge them. And Jesus told the disciples to do this in remembrance of him. It was like kind of the last straw for these guys. If they hadn't seen Lazarus risen from the dead probably days earlier, they probably would have jumped ship and been like, all right, Jesus, like, you're weird, okay? Like, we get all this stuff, but now you want us to eat bread and pretend it's you and, and you want to do, take over Passover? Like, you're making Passover about you, Jesus. You weren't alive back then. Passover's not about you. It'd be like if I said, you know, this, this December, okay, Christmas is coming, but I had an idea, okay? Maybe we could have Brimus instead, right? Like, like maybe it could be about me this time, and we'll sing some songs like Brian Resty, Mary, Gentleman, right? Like, I think it would be kind of fun. I would enjoy it a little bit more, but if I ever got to that point, I hope you would be like, Brian, like, I got to slap you. That's weird. Like, this is not your holiday, but that's what Jesus is essentially doing, He's saying, forget Passover, like this thing you celebrated for like a thousand years, it's done. Like, do this in my name now, okay? I'm here, do this in remembrance of me. Okay, it, that's, that's crazy. I think maybe Jesus, that whole when everybody lined the streets and they're fanning you and saying, save us, like that might have gone to your head a little bit. But we're not going to celebrate you on Passover, it just doesn't make sense. But he carries on. They eat dinner. They've, they've enjoyed their meal together. That's kind of sitting in the back of their mind. They're probably, you know, being a little weary as they eat. Like, what else is he going to say is his body? Like, where are you going with this, Jesus? And then in the same way, okay, after the supper, which I thought was very New England, right? After supper, he took the cup, okay? He takes the cup and he says, this cup, okay, this cup, this cup. And they said, Jesus, we know this part too. Like, we're good Jewish boys. We've done this a thousand times. This blood represents Passover. And if you know Passover, the Passover was when there was a night when Moses brought the news from God and he said, paint your doors over your house. I want you to slaughter a lamb, okay? And I want you to paint up and down the sides of your door and over the top. 
and the death angel is going to come through the valley. And if you have that over your door, it will go over your house. It will pass over your house. And death will not come to your house that night. That was what passed over. That's what they're celebrating. And so this cup was to remember that. The blood or the, the, the blood that was painted over the door. And so this cup held the wine and that's what that was in remembrance of. And so they're like, Jesus, we know that. And then Jesus says, no, you, you don't know this. He says, this cup represents the new covenant. This cup is, is the new covenant. Not the old one, not a second covenant. Like, this is the new covenant, okay? Like I told you, Passover's kind of like fading away. Do this in remembrance of me. Now you have a reason. This cup is the new covenant. And I know you've heard for weeks and weeks that we've been talking about this new covenant, but it is foundational to why we do this, why we are here. And he's trying to communicate that the covenant that they knew, the one that God made with Moses at the top of Mount Sinai, like that, that covenant is, is going to be ending. It will not be any longer. There is an end to it. And 650 years before this, this is really cool, okay? 650 years before Jesus is saying all this, there was a prophet named Jeremiah. So a prophet's like someone who speaks on behalf of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to them and then they would share it to the nation, okay? So 650 years before this time, Jeremiah says, the days are coming. They're coming. You don't know when, but they're coming. The days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant, a new one, a brand new one with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, okay? A new covenant. And it will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors. It won't be like the one that Moses brought down when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. It's brand new. 650 years before Jesus had this meal with them, he Jeremiah foretold the day is coming when the old will stop and there will be a new covenant coming. That whole Ten Commandments, that whole thing that you guys have going on, it's going to come to an end. All those rules and rituals, it's going to come to an end and a new covenant will take its place. And so, well, Jesus, like, how's that going to be any different? Like, what's this new one going to be? Because that old one has like a million laws and a million rules, and it's hard to keep all of that up. So how is this one going to be different? And he says this, Jeremiah goes on, he says, I'm going to put my law, all those things that I gave to Moses, I'm going to put my law in their minds, and I'm going to write it in their hearts. I'm going to write it on their hearts. It's going to be a conscious covenant. I'm going to write it on their hearts. They're not going to have to memorize all of these rules and, and rituals and sacrifices. I'm going to write it on their hearts. It's going to be a brand new relationship because that's what a covenant really is. And, and so to understand that, we're going to kind of pause the story and we're going to look at three different covenants that were real popular back in the day. Okay, So these are like ancient covenant types that were... They're, uh, put into use and what they were familiar with. When they said covenant, they're like, okay, so like what kind of covenant is it going to be? And the first one is called a bilateral parity treaty, okay? A bilateral parity treaty. And this is like two uh, equal people. So two people that have equal power, like they come together, they make an agreement. So it's, it's, you can kind of think of it as like a business contract, right? Like I'm going to pay you $1,000, and then you replace my roof. That's pretty cheap, but I'm going to do that, okay? 
And so it's kind of equal. You each have something of equal value to bring, and you make an agreement. You shake hands. You spit. You shake. You like you know slaughter a lamb or whatever, and then you ratify that covenant, and then that's a bilateral parity treaty. Okay, a business deal. The next is called a bilateral, and I butcher this word, suzerainty treaty. Okay, a bilateral suzerainty treaty. Okay, so this one is where you have someone. Of, they're like of unequal power, okay? So you have like a suzerain who's generally like a king or someone that's in a, a position of power. And then you have what they call a vassal, okay? Not a vessel, but a vassal. And that person is usually on the receiving end of all of these terms, okay? It's, it's sort of like a king making terms with a servant, okay? Like he makes the rules, you live by them, or you get the punishment for it. Okay, or maybe it's sort of like, like a father-son relationship. Like you clean your room, you take out the trash, right? Like you empty the dishwasher and you get to sleep in my house. Okay, if you don't do those things, you don't get an allowance, you don't get to, you know, play Xbox, you don't get the good things. You do what I say, right? Or if you're going out, I'll give you the keys to my car, okay? But you have to be home by 10 o'clock. If you're not home by 10 o'clock, you don't get to use the car next time. And you're grounded for the next week. Like, that's what a bilateral kind of suzerainty treaty is. It's where one person dictates terms, the other lives by them or receives the brunt end of it, okay? So it's, it's two unequals. And this is one of the more common ones. Now, there's one more left that's really uncommon, okay? But, but before we get to that, I guess, but this one right here is, this is the, the type of covenant that God made with, with the nation of Israel, Okay, that's what's important about this. This is the covenant that God made. He said to Moses, here's all these rules. Okay? Here's all this stuff. If you do all of this, if you do all that I've commanded, I'll protect you. I'll make you victorious in battle. Your crops will grow. You'll flourish. I'll bring you to this amazing land. It'll be great. But if you don't, I will not protect you. If you don't just worship me, I won't make your crops grow. If you turn away from me, then who knows? All bets are off. Like punishment will come. That's what God told him. If you obey me, then I will protect you. If you don't, then all bets are off. And here's the thing. God did this. This is how the whole Old Testament goes. If you've ever read it, which you should, it's like a roller coaster of Israel serving God, turning away from God, serving God, turning away. And they go from like high points to low points, high points to low points. And they just can't quite get it where they, they realize like maybe God was serious. Maybe we should not have any other gods before him. But they are on this roller coaster until eventually God says, you know what? Like a good parent, I've had enough. You need to go to your room. I sent my son to his room yesterday. I was like, you need, you win a trip to your bedroom. You need to go there. And God did this. He sent Israel into exile and and, uh, Babylonian exile for 70 years. He said, enough is enough. You're gone. And he sent them to exile where they were put to slavery for 70 years until finally they learned their lesson and they came out of that. But that's a bilateral suzerain treaty that they were used to. So when they hear covenant, like, are you going to do another one of those, Jesus? Is that what this is? Okay, but here's, here's the third one. The third type, it's much less common. You don't see this one very often. It's called a promissory covenant. Okay, so this one, it's, it's, you have two parties, but only one party really enters in to the relationship. Only one party 
is the one that holds the brunt of this. It's, uh, it's, it's much less common. It's party A kind of makes a promise. Party A says, I'm going to do all of this stuff for you. All you have to do is benefit from it. Okay, like I'm promising that I'm going to do X, Y, and Z regardless of what you do, regardless of who you are, where you go in life. This is what's going to happen. And so this type of covenant, it's not bilateral. It's, it's one person for the betterment of another. No strings attached, right? no terms, no conditions, an unlimited, unconditional treaty or covenant. Okay, the best way that I've heard explain this is like a middle school crush. Okay, like you've probably received or maybe you've written one of those letters where you're like, I will love you until the end of time. Like you can move away to that other city, but I will never, ever forget you. I love you. There's nothing you can do about it. Check yes if you agree, right? Like the, the, the person, they don't have to love you back, but you will always love them that they could move, you won't see them all summer long, but that love will never change. Okay, that's, that's sort of like this type of covenant where it doesn't matter what the other person does, you are committed to it, you've agreed to the terms, and you're going for it because you love that person, that you're doing whatever you can. And it's unconditional, even if they don't check that box and reciprocate those feelings. It's unconditional. Now, regardless of what type of covenant, regardless of which one of these three you entered into, there was a common thread through all of them, and that was the spilling of blood. Okay, this is ancient times. So something had to die for this to become, like, legal. Okay, legally binding. Blood had to be spilled. It's gross, I know, but that's how it was. Something would have to die, whether it was a lamb or a goat or maybe your neighbor's cat, something like that, but something would have to die. And the way they did this, and it's graphic, I know, is they would get together, they would bring this, depending on how wealthy you were, and they would cut it in half, okay? Weird. They would cut it in half, and then the two parties would walk between the middle of it, okay? They would walk through it, and essentially they're saying, if I do not keep up my end of the bargain, may I become like this poor animal. That's how serious this was, that they would say, may I be like this if I don't withhold my end of this covenant, of this treaty. These were the terms, and, and, and this is what they would hold to. And this is a ton of information, I know, but, but this is so vitally important because this is the type of covenant that Jesus is talking about. And they're finishing up. Okay, they're, they're drinking. They're having their meal. They've, they've finished up, and Jesus brings the cup out. And he says, this cup, it's the new covenant. It's new. It's a new kind, and it's in my blood. That's what he says, in my blood. So they're like, whoa, whoa, wait, Jesus. Like, your blood? Like, don't you know, like... In order to have it be your blood, like you need to die. Like you can only do something like this in your name and in, in your blood one time. Like you know that, right, Jesus? Like if you die, there's no coming back because the only one that can bring people back apparently is you. So if you go, like who's going to bring you back? But he's saying you're, you're kind of, you're missing the point of this. He says in Matthew's gospel, it says this, this is the cup, the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And I'm sure this was all going so fast for them that they're like, 
you're, you're talking about your body and being broken, and now you want a covenant that's in your blood, and it's going to be poured out for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And it's just so confusing, Jesus. Like, what are you saying? And, and I'm sure he left all of this on, and he didn't explain it any further. And I'm sure it didn't make any sense to them until many days later. It's like, if you've seen Mary Poppins, the new one, the, the guy Jack, he's like, the thing about Mary Poppins is she doesn't explain anything, right? And that's probably how these guys felt, that Jesus, you're dropping these bombs on us and we don't know what it means we don't know what it means and they couldn't imagine it that jesus would die even though jesus had been saying this right from the very beginning that his time was short that his time would be coming and they should have seen that coming if i stood up here week one okay of this series and we talked about jesus's opening act Do you remember his name he wore like camel's hair and weird outfits if you know it you can say it John the Baptist, okay, John the Baptist. He's kind of like Jesus' opening act. And he says, when he saw Jesus coming for the first time, he says, look, behold the Lamb of God, okay? It's not a compliment to be called an animal, right? But there was symbolism there. Behold, look, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. John knew it. John knew it way before this time. And Jesus had been foretelling about this right from the beginning. And so the next day, this new covenant, this new unlimited, unconditional covenant would be put into motion and sealed by Jesus's body hanging on the cross. Jesus giving himself up for all of us. His body would be broken. His blood poured out for us. Not for a single nation this time, not for a single group of people, but for the whole world, a new relationship that's for you and it's for me, it's for everybody. And one that God promised Abraham thousands of years earlier, which was one of the first you know, uh, promissory covenants where God told Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And then through that nation, I'm going to bless the whole world. Abraham, you just have to accept it. Like there was no terms, there was no conditions for Abraham. He just said, this is what's going to happen. I just want you to know, I am promising this is going to happen. And he made it so. That's what happened. So if you've ever kind of entertained the thought that maybe like that you've passed your last chance with God, you haven't. Or if you've ever said, you know, I, I, I think I went too far last night. Like I've done too many things that Jesus, he just couldn't possibly forgive me. If, if there has to be a limit to his forgiveness because I've tried and then I failed and I've tried and then I failed and then when I asked for forgiveness, I think he gave it to me, but then I went and I did it again and then I did it again and again. And if that is you, then you are in the right place this morning because Jesus says, I haven't forgotten you. I forgave you. I already forgave you. I covered that. I put myself on this treaty. I sealed it with my blood, with my body, and it was for you. And there was no end to the love that I have for you. The covenant's been made. You've been bought with a, for a price. And I think if we were to ask John, hey, Matthew, Mark, 
Luke and John, like that John who wrote his gospel account, the guy who walked with Jesus, who talked with Jesus, who ate with him, who was there in that upper room, who drank from the cup, who hugged Jesus' mom as she comforted him when he died on the cross. I think this John, the one who saw the empty tomb, who ate breakfast with the man who was supposed to be in that tomb after he rose, John, I think if we said, John, how do I get this? How do I become part of that covenant? Like, what steps do I have to take? What are the terms of this relationship? What do I have to do? There must be something big to be able to get that. I think John would say, God's love for you, it's unlimited. It's covered. It's unconditional. There's no terms. The only term is this. You have to receive it. You have to accept it. You have to say, Jesus, okay. That's why we call it the gift of salvation, because you receive it. You don't do anything to deserve it. You don't do anything to get it. You just accept it. There's no end. And I think John would say this. We said, John, how do, how do I get there? I think he would say to us that whoever trusts in him, whoever believes in him, shall not perish. And we've heard this last week. Shall not perish, but have eternal, unlimited, unconditional life. It really is that simple. It's that simple. It's why it's the gift. You don't have to do anything to get it. You don't have to do anything to, to be able to be worthy of it. It's there for you. It's there for me. It's there for all of us. Not for a nation, but for the whole world. And that night, Jesus made it perfectly clear that he'd come to replace what was old with something brand new. But there was one more loose end that he had to tie up before that could happen. And you'll have to come back next week in order to hear what that is. So let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity to learn about you. We thank you for the, the gift of salvation, God. I pray that if there is someone in this room that has not placed their trust in you, Jesus, that today that they would say those words, Jesus, I trust in you. Jesus, I place my faith in you, and I accept that gift of salvation. That though I've done nothing to deserve it, God, I just thank you for what you've done, and I choose to follow you today. God, we love you. We pray you bring us back next week to hear the rest of this message, God, and I pray that people's lives will be changed through this, God. In your name we pray. Amen.